So, good morning. Let's begin with this uh, other teaching on prayer from the uh, Gospel of Luke. And then we'll take a few moments of silence to allow it to sink into us. At one place, after Jesus had been praying, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. He answered, when you pray, say, Father, may your name be hallowed, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we too forgive all who have done us wrong and do not put us to the test. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend who comes to him in the middle of the night and says, my friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine on a journey has turned up at my house and I have nothing to offer him. And he replies from inside, do not bother me. The door is shut for the night. My children and I have gone to bed, and I cannot get up and give you what you want. I tell you that even if he will not get up and provide for him out of friendship, his very persistence will make the man get up and give him all he needs. So I say to you, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, those who seek find, and to those who knock, the door will be opened. Would any father among you offer his child a snake when he asks for a fish, or a scorpion when he asks for an egg? If you bad as you are, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the man in that parable goes to his friend and he asks 
for some bread, not even for himself, but for a visitor who has turned up unexpectedly at his house. So if we see this uh, teaching on prayer as a kind of uh, teaching on petitionary prayer, we should, get, we should get these details clear. It's about friendship. It's not about manipulating a higher authority or getting money out of a foundation or getting money out of a, a, your boss. This is friendship. And if at first you don't succeed, he says, just keep trying. Julian of Norwich says the same thing. She says, God always answers our prayers. And if you feel that God is not answering them, then keep asking. And eventually, because God will only do his own will. So by persevering, your will will eventually be transformed into his will. And when you want what God wants, you'll get what you want. Because <laughs> God, God always gets what he wants. <laughs> so we have to be a little more playful about interpreting, and we'll come to this tomorrow, uh, interpreting the scriptures from an experience of silence. Instead of being crudely literalist, a fundamentalist, and, you know, you, you can set up a TV evangelist channel and make millions of dollars by interpreting this literally and screwing money out of the poor by convincing them that uh, if they give, they will get more back in return. And this gospel of prosperity, which is one of the biggest forms of Christianity today. Clearly a, a travesty of the, the real teaching. So we have to interpret. We have to have the subtlety, the insight, the playfulness of imagination to be able to interpret these scriptures. We'll come back to this question of interpretation from silence in a, moment, in a little bit later. And then, the, uh, in, in this very simple little parable, little story that we're not meant to take literally, but at the same time is telling us the truth, uh, the man gets, gets what he wants. We can't, can hardly imagine that you know, God is going to get, we're going to wear God out by asking, and then God will eventually give it because he wants to get a good night's sleep. So let's be a little more subtle about this. And then Jesus uses this little parable to lead into this profound statement, this tremendously encouraging and uplifting statement that those who ask will receive, those who knock will be, have the door open for them, and those who seek will find. All that's necessary for us to understand that is to understand what asking means. 
and what knocking on the door means. Cloud of unknowing speaks, speaks about beating upon the cloud of unknowing. And to understand what seeking really means. And then he reinforces this um, tremendous affirmation and encouragement to his disciples by reminding us again of the benevolence of God, of the goodness of God. That if we, can, if we, in our relationship to our own children, are naturally generous and uh, naturally want nothing but their well-being, does it make sense that God, from, who is our archetypal parent, that God would not have that same nature that we experience in our altruistic and other-centered love for our own children. So this, very, here, this seems to be a teaching on petitionary prayer, which can be devalued and, and, rid, and made ridiculous by turning into some kind of magic. But it's actually a, a further way of Jesus delivering his teaching to us on the nature of prayer that we heard from the Sermon on the Mount yesterday. Teaching on prayer, which is fundamentally and essentially contemplative. So I said uh, last night, too, that the primary way that we, we have to enter into the temeon, into the inner room, is by becoming silent, becoming still. Silence and stillness are complementary uh, qualities of the mind, of, the, of our being, of our heart. When we're silent, we are still. When we're still, we're silent. And simplicity is a natural uh, result of, of those two qualities coming together. So what is silence, I asked, and what do we do in order to do the work of silence, in order to become silent and simple and still. The essential qualities of the contemplative state. Well, we can see silence in a negative way, as most people in our culture do. The noisier the culture, the noisier our own minds, the more we think of silence as something negative. We see it as an absence of something, an absence of communication. The phone isn't working. The volume is, is uh, control is, is, uh, is broken. Uh, or I'm not speaking to you because I have decided to shut you out and to punish you by not recognizing your existence or my relationship with you. So these are negative aspects of silence, which are not really silence in any meaningful sense. If we think of silence just as an absence of something, say the absence of sound or the absence of noise, 
and then we will only go so far into this experience of contemplation or this experience of silence. We'll only go so far into understanding the meaning of these passages that we've been looking at. We will become quiet, and having a quiet mind is a good thing. It's better than having a noisy mind. But it's not silence. And there are many methods and techniques that you can use or train in in order to quieten your mind and quieten your feelings, quieten, quieten the inner space in, in your mind. But it's not silence. We can see silence positively when we understand that it's a direct encounter with the true nature and reality of something or someone. When we are really meeting something, someone, in total truth, there is no pretense, there's no play acting, there's no uh, deception, there's no doubt, there's no suspicion. But when we are truly encountering something, someone, with that uh, direct appreciation or direct recognition of their true nature, then we are moving into silence. There's a difference here, then, that might be helpful to distinguish between sound and noise. The world is full of natural sounds, of things in the physical world, which don't disturb us. When we're meditating and we hear the wind in the trees, we don't say, oh, that's really irritating. Or we hear bird song, we don't sort of go out and shoot the birds. Uh, or we hear the, the rain outside while we're meditating, that doesn't distract us. What does distract us? A leaf blower. <laughs> there is actually an international organization for the prevention of leaf blowers, <laughs> which I'm intending to sign up to. <laughs> totally unnecessary uh, piece of mechanical noise. Uh, what other things distract you? Uh, people talking noisily and stupidly. <laughs> if you hear, if you, if you hear a kind of a, a quiet conversation, and you tell, you know from the tone of voice, you may not be eavesdropping, you may not hear it, but it doesn't, I think, irritate. I'm speaking for myself too. But it doesn't really irritate you so much as if you hear people talking nonsense or you hear, or the radio is on and you hear the talk show talking a lot of nonsense just to fill up the airwaves. And then, actually, when you are doing the work of silence and you are distracted or interrupted by that kind of noise, 
you see it for what it is, don't you? And you suddenly realize, this is, my God, do I ever speak like that? How much silly talk and chatter there is in the world. And I'm part of it. But when I'm doing the work of silence, trying to meditate, for example, I can recognize that. So mechanical noise or silly talk or deliberate distraction is noise. I mean, uh, the deliberate distraction, I mean something like um, mu music in restaurants. Loud music, which gets louder and louder every year. Uh, just designed to, I don't know, just create this, but it must be some marketing technique in supermarkets, uh, of course, too. And um, somebody told me the other day in supermarkets, uh, at Christmas and other holiday periods, they play faster music <laughs> because you do your shopping more quickly. <laughs> and they want to get you through. So this sort of deliberate distraction isn't ever as innocent as it seems. It's there for a purpose. Anyway, much of modern noise that comes from our environment a mechanical, noisy environment. The electric car is going to make life a little quieter for us, I think. Uh, our, particularly our mobile phones, to which we are so attached. Uh, the constant notifications that come in, the little pings that make you realize that you haven't been completely forgotten. <laughs> that there's somebody in the world who at least remembers your email address. Uh, the air conditioning, fridges. So we are, we are in a much noisier world than we were 20 years ago or our ancestors were. And partly as a result of that, we become more and more unaware of the nature of silence and what natural silence means. And as a result of this lack of awareness, because how many children grow up with any experience of silence anymore? Because we are less and less familiar with the experience of silence, the unconscious, the background noise of our world, of our technological culture, invades us unconsciously, more and more destructively. And we suffer from that. We ha there are symptoms associated with that rising level of interior noise, which is aggravated by the external noise that we are now more and more unconscious of. We just accept it as, as, as part of life. And the symptoms that that creates are identifiable and measurable and subject of a lot of research. Anxiety and stress, depression and anger. The uh, decibel level of a city street is something like seven, a minute, about 70 decibels, which is the equivalent of a, uh, a vacuum cleaner 
going on in your room. And imagine how noisy a plane is. So we have noise-canceling headphones, which I use quite often. So this is part of the environmental problem we have. And it's given a little push. Uh, environmental problem uh, of, our, of our culture, which creates, uh, which creates uh, an interior dysfunction. Rise of mental illness, the increasing level of loneliness in Western technological society. All of these, I think, can be partly traced to this, this aspect of our environmental crisis. So not surprisingly, John Maine says that the most important thing for people of the modern world to discover, to rediscover, is the meaning and nature of silence. And only if we have a personal experience of what silence is and what it means and what its nature is, only through a personal experience would we be able to understand why Meister Eckhart said, there is nothing so much like God as silence. And just think how challenging a statement that is for, for most modern religious people. What on earth does that mean? 95% of churches in the world apart from Benedictus uh, Church in Canberra, where Sarah is building a contemplative uh, church community. Uh, most churches would have no sense of what that means or that it's meaningful at all. There is nothing so much like God as silence. Our churches are, of course, wall-to-wall -wall noise. Maybe beautiful noise, a beautiful choir, beautiful sermons occasionally, beautiful liturgies. <laughs> Priests, please take note. <laughs> but uh, silence is, is threatening. I was invited uh, recently to buy some, buy some parish priests, uh, by some priests in a parish to uh, take a Sunday when I was around, to, uh, for them to be able to introduce a contemplative dimension into the liturgy. So we, uh, we began with, uh, they talked about it and what they would like. I think they wanted me to do it so that they wouldn't get into trouble. <laughs> and, uh, but they supported it. And uh, so we, uh, we had the procession in as usual. And I got to the altar, I explained what we were going to be doing a little differently. And I said, let's take a couple of minutes of silence before we press the forward button again. So we uh, took a couple of minutes of silence and we had the, continued with the, with the liturgy. And then there was a little pause between the readings. There was a couple of minutes after the homily. It wasn't, they weren't long uh, silences. And uh, similarly, after, after the consecration and uh, after communion, we meditated for 10 minutes. And I explained how to meditate, if they wanted to do it that way. 
and I rang the bell so that they knew that they were, you know, there was a beginning and an end to it. So the whole thing took about maybe, maybe maximum 15 minutes longer than usual on a Sunday morning. The only complaint that was raised with the, with the parish priests was that the cars coming in for the next Mass were meeting the cars going out for the previous Mass, and that wasn't so well synchronized. And there was but apart from that, I don't think there was any complaint. I'm not sure that they, they kept up some version of that. I think their courage failed them after a while. Uh, maybe there were one or two people who said, oh, maybe we could just cut it down to one minute. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, they, but they, they kept some element of uh, silent preparation for the Mass as well, I think. It takes courage to introduce a change in people's habits. But there's every good reason to try it. In any case, unless we have this collective personal experience of silence, personal and collective, I don't think we are going to understand the meaning of these teachings of Jesus on prayer. And we're certainly not going to understand what Meister Eckhart is trying to say. So, of course, part of the problem here is just our high level of mental chatter, mental noise. We are aware of this because it produces symptoms of stress, anxiety, insomnia, and general dis-ease. So there is, in our culture, a corresponding reaction which uh, looks for ways of calming the mind, quietening the mind. Still not yet dealing with silence, but at least it's a start. Like mindfulness is a good preparation for meditation because mindfulness calms the mind. Actually, meditation calms the mind too, but uh, mindfulness is easier than meditation. So for many people, it's a, uh, it's a first step. No problem with that. We actually have our own methods of mindfulness as well, but we've forgotten the meaning of those practices, of those ways of prayer, of those ways of mindfulness, like Lexio, the reading of scripture. So that, or coming into a quiet, coming into a silent room where people are praying in silence and respecting the silence in that room as something sacred. Not, you know, that's why Jean said this morning, or asked you this morning, if you come uh, after the meditation has started, if you don't mind, please meditate outside. You're still with us in spirit. But uh, it is less disturbing to the other 150 or so people who are, who, are, who are there. But that awareness has dropped out of our Christian culture. We don't know. We think, you know, a quiet church is a nice thing, if you can even find a quiet church these days. But uh, the idea of a room, which is an external room, manifesting the inner room of this work of silence, and that that is prayer, that is something sacred, that has almost completely slipped out of our 
Christian self-understanding. I meet many parents, you know, who are sad that their children, who were brought up in the faith, were, uh, have, have dropped it, left the faith altogether. Well, I can understand it. And I think a lot will depend upon whether the parents understand why they have done it, what is lacking in our Christian experience of worship and gathering and prayer. And if all we can say to the young is, go to church, well, we'll be saying it as more and more churches close their, close their doors for the wrong reason and close their doors for the last time. We won't disappear entirely, but we'll just shrink, shrink to some, some very minimal kind of uh, presence in society. But life is more subtle and complicated than that, just as an environmental crisis may generate forces of renewal both within the human mind and within nat natural processes itself, so our religious crisis is generating a contemplative renewal. So we're dealing, as always, with yin and yang. We're always dealing with complementary or what often seems like oppositional forces. And uh, there are some people who see that as conflict and as hostile and become very angry with the other side. And there are others who see, think one of the things that contemplative experience gives you is the ability to see that these uh, forces are actually working together for a new synthesis, for a new form which will one day grow out of it. The journey to silence, if we wish to make this journey, and we may be stimulated to make it because we are suffering the symptoms of excessive inner noise, the journey to silence involves choice and change, and therefore fear because we fear making definitive choices. How do I know it's the right choice? How do I know uh, that I'm not saying no to something else? So a definitive choice creates a certain level of fear, and so, of course, does change. We all like, we all want things to change, but we would rather observe the change rather than be part of the change. I think this explains a great deal of the, of the um, dysfunctional nature of modern politics. We all want to change our leaders, or most people do, but uh, how many of us are prepared to be part of that change. There's an important distinction that St. Benedict uh, uses in his language between 
quiet and silence, quies and silencium. Quies suggests, you know, oh, what a nice quiet room this is. What a nice quiet weekend we had. We just needed some quiet time. Healthy, psychologically uh, refreshing, to quieten down the noise of our minds and environment. But silence is something more. By practicing quiet in a retreat like this, we called it a silent retreat, but it's, it's beginning to be silent, when we learn to practice quiet, when we learn not to talk unnecessarily, for example, to be conscious and aware that when we do talk, we are risking the spirit of silence in the group. And we are very careful about it. Similarly, the noises we make off, off stage. That we are conscious of the need for quiet in order to create the conditions for us to do this beautiful work of silence. Quiet is more to do with external noise. Silence is more to do with the laying aside of thoughts, an inner, interior silence. And the first step, if we decide to make this decision, if we decide to move uh, in this direction, the first step is to repent, which is our usual translation of the word metanoia. Jesus began his teaching with those words, repent, as we translate it, and believe the good news. To repent, to repent is metanoia. Uh, so metanoia literally means to change one's mind, to change the direction in which you're facing. As we said, change is a very difficult thing for us to do. But this is the first step, repentance in the sense of changing the direction. There's a wonderful Chinese saying, unless, uh, if, if we, sorry, it says, if we continue in the direction in which we are going, we will definitely arrive at the place we're heading for. <laughs> Isn't that profound? <laughs> in other words, if you want to change, change direction. Otherwise, you, you can see the cliff edge that you're walking towards. Lemmings don't seem to have this insight, do they? <laughs> so the first step to repent, to change, to change the direction, is to become aware, and then to guard your heart. One of the great uh, concepts of, of Christian contemplative uh, teaching, to guard your heart, to be aware, mindful is the current word, but to be conscious of what is coming in and coming out of that inner room. Just as we're conscious more and more 
of what we eat and drink, and we look at the labels, we look at the ingredients, we want to eat healthy, we avoid junk food, or we feel uh, so on. So we have to be at least equally conscious of what we are taking in and digesting through our minds and our senses. Junk stimulus, the kind of, I'm not saying you can never watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, we won't go there. But, uh, so I'm not saying, I'm not talking about some kind of puritanical uh, uh, you know, avoidance of, of any entertainment or fun. But there is a, it's always a question of discretion and moderation. How much junk, I wouldn't say Game of Thrones is junk, but <laughs> how much junk are we taking in? And are we aware that we're taking it in? And are we aware of the, of the uh, effect it's having on us? And of course, we're conditioned. We're educated. We'll come back to this understanding, to this idea of education later. But we're conditioned and educated by our environment, by our culture, by our family, and by our friends. Our personal consciousness can easily in almost inevitably become sucked into the collective consciousness. We don't want to be too different from other people. Maybe this is a way of understanding that hard saying of Jesus. Which uh, we find difficult to understand or to swallow. Mm, sorry. You must not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man will find his enemies under his own roof. No one is worthy of me who cares more for father or mother than for me. No one is worthy of me who cares more for son or daughter. No one is worthy of me who does not take up his cross and follow me. Whoever gains his life will lose it, Whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. Well, how do we live that saying, that teaching? I think that the sword separates us from our surrounding culture. And that is painful. It's a separation. And it sets us apart. Actually, it's what the word Ecclesia, church, means people set a little bit apart whose way of life is different from the way of life of the surrounding culture. This was what made the Christians noticeable in the early church and the fact that they cared for each other and loved each other. But they were different. 
who wants to be really different. So we have to choose to make the space for this work of silence. And then we have to renew and reinforce the choice. And this explains why asceticism, the exercise of our spiritual life, is an inevitable part of Christian identity, of, it, of any spiritual path. Asceticism which literally means exercise, like it's the exercise that an athlete does or a musician does in, in practicing or a student does in studying. This exercise, which involves discipline, but is done for love and is freely chosen, and you do it because you want to do it, that is an essential part of any meaningful spiritual life. You can't do it without a bit of asceticism. And what do we need to support this discipline? To support the continuation in the same journey, in the same direction. We need companions. We need people to train with. We need a team. We need friends. We need support. And we need a frame, some kind of frame of reference such as is given to us by a tradition. We need times of retreat. And we need times set aside for a daily practice, for this work of silence. In doing that, we will be able to rediscover something vital for our Sikh culture. We will rediscover the health and the joy of solitude, of being in solitude. That means being a little different from the way the world is going around us. Less identifying ourselves as consumers and indulging the frenetic, ridiculous, absurd, self-destructive consumerism of our culture. I was in an airport the other day at 6 o'clock in the morning and I couldn't believe it. All the shops were open and, uh, and it was as if there were flies gathering on a corpse, you know? <laughs> I mean, it, it, just uh, cr hordes of people running around and actually I read somewhere the other day that, you know, the, the price you pay in a duty-free shop at an airport is actually no cheaper than you could get. Is that true? Yeah. It's experience there. Right. You checked it in London. So it's, a, it's not even for any rational reason getting a bargain. Why is it then? Why, why, why has it become such, uh, such an obscene orgy? I mean, it was an orgy, consumer orgy. I mean, we better have a real orgy than that kind of orgy. <laughs> it might be, might be the only solution to it. <laughs> so, so what does it mean then to be a little different from the way the world is operating around you? It doesn't mean that you feel superior. You just feel, well, I'm not going to 
I'm not going to get caught up in that anymore, that's all. We become free from the habituated compulsions, not only of consumerism, but also of the deeper patterns of achievement, of success, of making a name, of, of, of achieving a reputation, or anxiety. These, these patterns that, that, that drain the life out of us over time and create high levels of mental illness exacerbated by often the medication we take to cure it. <coughs> of course, to make this change of mind, to change the way we live, and just begin by setting aside time every day for meditation, that starts the clock ticking, and it keeps the clock ticking. This leads to a radical peace, but it's terrifying. It's nonsensical, and it's threatening to everything that we have been conditioned to believe in. The work of silence is the work of attention. It's a work that does not need to be audited or evaluated. Sorry for the accountants present or the management consultants. You don't need, and because you can't, evaluate or audit this kind of work. And we also don't need anyone's permission to do it. It's essential to our spiritual health, our spiritual health. There's a saying uh, from an old rabbi that um, God does not expect us to succeed, but we are not allowed to give up. And that's our, that's, that's our, starting, our starting signal. The first step, though, is to renounce. When we sit to meditate, when we sit to do this work of silence, as we move into this inner room, we renounce planning, we renounce worrying, we renounce remembering, fearing, and especially fantasizing. This is a, a radical renunciation. It's poverty of spirit. What are you doing when you meditate? Why should I meditate? These are the questions people ask. Well, just to do the first of the Beatitudes. Become poor in spirit. That's all. It's not about getting anything. It's not about mastering anything. It's about renouncing. But the next step is essential too. Because even when you renounce something, as the early Desert, as the Desert Fathers uh, well understood, you can become proud about your renunciation. <laughs> I think we've all met, you know, meditators or spiritual people, or you know, people who have studied a lot and been on lots of retreats, and you know, 
who have a kind who 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 are really sort of um, just in, in, yeah very pleased with themselves <laughs> and very and give very pleased that they are superior to you because <laughs> you're only doing one period of meditation a day and they're doing six <laughs> and they do three month silent retreats and you can barely get two days a year. So we've all met people uh, in whom we can see that, that pride of renunciation. So renunciation by itself ain't enough. You also have to let go. And letting go is, the, is what makes the renunciation work. Otherwise, the renunciation can become a trap. This was very conscious to the early church uh, because they were very conscious of the ascetical aspect of Christian life. We're not very conscious of the ascetical aspect of Christian life, so we're not very conscious of the dangers of pride in, in renunciation. We don't renounce very much. But as soon as you begin to renounce, you have to make sure that you follow through and let go. I was once, uh, many years ago, in an unknown country, we were being offered a, uh, uh, I think it was a, like an apartment for the use of the, of the <coughs> as a little meditation center. And it was a generous offer by a man who had a lot of apartments. Uh, and he was uh, generous to, to think of it and offer it because he knew we needed a place. That was the beginning of weeks and weeks of negotiation. Weeks of phone calls, weeks of emails, well, it was before emails actually. And um, there were, he was absolutely terrified of what he had offered. Terrified. And he said, well, how much use is it going to be? And how many people are going to be there? And, but, you know, how many keys are you going to have? <laughs> how many people are going to be allowed in? And all in themselves reasonable questions, but they were just spinning around, and eventually I realized he, he, he couldn't do it. He, he, could, he could give, but he couldn't let go. Renunciation is a form of giving, but you've got to let go as well. And in the end, we just took mercy on him and said, you know, why don't we uh, let you off the hook? Oh, thank you, he said. <laughs> he, was very, he was very grateful. So, and we all have this every, every time we meditate, too. So we have to learn to let go, which means that we, that we enter into a state of being which is, in which there is an unconditional renunciation, an unconditional giving. Whatever the result, we do the meditation, whether it's a good or bad experience. We're not bargaining with ourselves or with God or... And that there is therefore, in this unconditionality, pure faith. 
And that pure faith, because faith is not about belief, faith is about relationship, faithful relationship. So we discover the meaning of faith as relationship. And what are we in relationship to? That's what we discover when we go into the inner room. But you won't get very far into the inner room unless you let go. You may, for example, renounce the time that you need to meditate. But having renounced the time, you then have to let go of any demands or expectations, as John Maine says. And then you begin to move into a journey of faith, not a technique. A journey of faith in which you discover what is in that room. Your father, who is in that secret place. We discover it emerges what we are in relationship to in that inner room. And what are the signs of progress? Well, we become aware of them. We cannot help but become aware of them. And we will become aware of them, in my experience, seeing people come to meditation with the right attitude, uh, very quickly. If you meditate and you just do it, you will see signs of change. You may not understand what they mean yet, but you will know from personal experience that something is changing in you. It doesn't take very long to realize that. Actually, it takes no time at all. Focus on the right thing, on the right level of change, on what you are really getting out of meditation, not what you think you should get out of it, but what you are actually getting out of it. And that will give you the motivation and the courage and the, and the energy and the zeal to continue meditating. You'll also notice, uh, I mean, at all sorts of levels, you'll notice it, the way you relate to other people and the, you, the way you're aware of your environment and even your, even your unconscious life. Many people have many have anxiety dreams. Uh, how many people have a have a repeated anxiety dream? Whoa! Well, I did. I had one for, for many years after I left university. It would come back not reg, not um, every night, but thank God. But it would come back uh, on occasions, I suppose, when I was under pressure, and it was always about uh, getting to an exam. Do you get that? It's a, it's a terror. It's a, you know, some people have missing air, air planes, and I don't mind missing planes. But, uh, but missing an exam, you've done all this work for an exam, and then you get the day wrong, or you go to the wrong exam hall, or something like that. So, now I must say that has, the further away I've gone from exams, the, uh, the, the less that. But there. Are, You'll notice that even in that inner world, of your dream world, for example, 
and the early desert, the desert fathers were very conscious of the psychology of this process, you'll find that anxiety in sleep reduces. This is a good sign that's going to keep you meditating. A sign of grace working on nature. We had a, uh, we've run a research project with an emergency department of a large hospital recently, and um, the emergency doctors and nurses are amazing human beings. Uh, they give themselves uh, endlessly and, and boundlessly to those in need. Too much. So much so that they have the highest burnout rate in medicine. I doubt whether there's equivalent burnout rate in medical offices on Fifth Avenue in New York. But in an emergency department of a, of a public hospital, these healers don't know when to stop. And uh, they burn out at a high rate. Well, we did this uh, research pro clinical trial with them. We're still doing it, actually. And the results are already amazing, even after a few weeks. Now, their take-up of meditation has not been that great. In other words, actually doing it. We suggested, of course, twice a day. Well, I think something like 35% did, did twice a day on average. It's higher than I thought, actually. But the, the results, nevertheless, are quite interesting. And one of the biggest results is burnout has dropped by something like 30%. And sleep has improved immensely. They all remark, and they're all wearing Fitbits and things, so they all, uh, we know how they're sleeping, well, they, <laughs> better than they do, and uh, they sleep much better. So those anxiety dreams will probably reduce, and occasionally you may get how many, of, how many of you have ever had a dream in which you understood everything? <laughs> Anyone? Yes, one. Okay. Can you remember what it was? Yes, it was. About, <laughs> about, about the universe. And do you know what the secret was? <laughs> I know. You forget. <laughs> But when you're in that state, in that dream state, you know there's absolutely nothing to worry about. Everything is right. Everything is in harmony. Everything is integrated. And it's, a, I'm sure, some kind of direct, direct contact, direct experience with our inner room. So these are the, some of the the results or some of the fruits that come from this work of silence. And it's not so difficult, actually, provided we do it. The more we do it, the more obvious it becomes. The more the secret becomes obvious. The father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Well, there's no point in being rewarded unless you know you're being rewarded. So you will know 
you're being rewarded. All you have to let go of is the desire to be rewarded. <laughs> Silence always takes us to a deeper level of stillness. And this level of stillness on the journey of silence is not, uh, doesn't, doesn't only apply and may not even obviously always apply in the time of meditation itself, in the time of the work. But this deeper level of stillness will characterize more and more of your waking and sleeping life. you will know that this is happening. If we think about this too much, and certainly if we think about it during the meditation, or during the work, the time of the work, or if we try to observe it, especially during the time of the work, of course, this switches off the silence. And we flip back into noise. Remember the difference between natural sound, which doesn't interrupt the silence, but even expresses the silence and the difference between that and noise, which is interfering and breaking the silence. Well, you come to be able to distinguish these two uh, things uh, in your own mind and in your own interactions. That's why it's so important to remember the radical simplicity of the work of silence. We are not thinking about it while we're doing it. Because if you're thinking about it, you are interrupting it. And we are not observing it. Because if you are observing it, you are complicating it. We only have to, in other words, remember that silence and simplicity are two sides of the same coin. And then, when we get that clear, the coin can begin to spin in stillness. And we find that what comes out of this experience in our daily life is an energy, a dynamism, and a new way of being. <coughs> 